Turn with me then to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. It's page 1197 in your pew Bibles, 1197. We're going to read the first 19 verses. And in these verses, the writer of the letter again applies as he does throughout this letter. He, he presents theological truths and then he speaks about how that impacts daily living. And he's just again uh, spoken of the great glory of our Savior. In verse 18 of chapter 12, you'll note there, uh, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of the trumpet. And he goes on to speak of the glory that we have received and that the Lord is going to come again and, and that he's going to judge all things. And at verse 28 of chapter 12, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Well, what does that look like? You might want to know. And then he tells us, he gives to us the practical consequences. So we'll take it up at verse 1 of chapter 13. Hear the word of God. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will, give, will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, that we are, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. As for the reading of God's holy word, then we'll turn in the Belgic Confession to Article 31. Under the category of old habits, die hard. I have just remembered I didn't pray for the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. Did I? I didn't. No. 
So we'll do that after we read this. It's still good. Article 31 of the Belgic Confession, wherein we confess this. We believe that ministers of the Word of God, elders and deacons, ought to be chosen to their offices by a legitimate election of the church with prayer in the name of the Lord and in good order as the Word of God teaches. So everyone must be careful not to push himself forward improperly, but he must wait for God's call so that he may be assured of his calling and be certain and sure that he is chosen by the Lord. As for the ministers of the Word, they all have the same power and authority no matter where they may be, since they are all servants of Jesus Christ, the only universal bishop and the only head of the church. Moreover, to keep God's holy order from being violated or despised, we say that everyone ought as much as possible to hold the ministers of the word and elders of the church in special esteem because of the work they do and be at peace with them without grumbling, quarreling, or fighting. This the church does believe. Then let's come before the Lord in prayer. Our merciful God, you who are pleased to condescend to speak to us through your word, grant us all now grace that we may not be mere hearers of your word, but doers also. And give us the grace of your Holy Spirit that we may believe what has been proclaimed to us. May we bring glory and honor to your name in all that we do as you conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Of this gracious Father we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, it, uh, at, for a time I considered, for a very brief time, uh, considered preaching two Christmas sermons uh, on this Christmas Sunday. It's not always that you have Christmas on a Sunday, and it seemed worthwhile to consider doing that, but then the busyness of the season got to me and it didn't work out. Uh, However, it's not entirely without uh, connection to Christmas, what is before us this afternoon. Uh, Even as we read this morning from Luke chapter 2, when the announcement of the birth by the angels is given to the shepherds, the angel uh, gives of Jesus three titles. He says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David. He says, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Savior, of course, meaning that he comes to purchase us from our sins, to redeem us from the power of sin. And then the Lord, of course, is a reference to his rule, his kingship, also in our lives. And then as Christ, he comes as the anointed one. He comes as the one set apart by God for the very specific purpose of fulfilling the offices that we were given in the beginning. For man in the beginning was made a prophet, priest, and king. And when Jesus was anointed at the Jordan River, you remember that he was baptized and that the Spirit of God descended him like a dove, or the descent was that of a dove, like a dove. Jesus was then anointed. He was made to be the Messiah, for that's what Christ means. That's what Messiah means. It means anointed. Anointed by the Holy Spirit to be our great, our chief prophet, our great priest, and our, our glorious king. And as we noted last time in in Article 30, Jesus Christ continues to minister to his church 
in, in very tangible, very specific ways. He provides servants of his uh, to shepherd his flock so that we might know the closeness, the care of our chief shepherd in Jesus Christ. He is in heaven. He's ruling over all of earth, but he has a special care for us as a congregation and so provides us servants who are his hands and his feet, who are his mouthpiece, who bring to us the word, who challenge us in the way of his will, who show us the mercy of his grace. And each of those offices represent or correspond to one of the offices he fulfilled as the Christ. For we have a preacher who is a speaker of God's word like the prophets of old. Not in the same way to be sure, but in that, in that they bring the word of God to us from the scriptures. We have kings, we have elders who rule in righteousness and teach us to walk in the way of righteousness. And we have priests who show us mercy, who minister the mercy of God's grace to us in the deacons. So the coming of Jesus Christ has very tangible, very real Christmas, has very concrete consequences also in this discussion of the order of the church, of what it means to have elders, ministers, and deacons. We're here talking about what the Christ child, what the Messiah who came on Christmas Day does among us. And the confession helps us to see the blessedness of Christ's rule amongst his people for that is the emphasis that runs throughout this entire article it is the ministry of christ among us that is evident already in that the office bearers says the uh, confession who are chosen for the task of leading in the church are to be affirmed it says by god's people You'll note that in the very opening paragraph, it says, We believe that ministers of the Word of God, elders and deacons, ought to be chosen to their offices by a legitimate election of the church with prayer in the name of the Lord and in good order as the Word of God teaches. That means, you understand, if you can remember the context in which Guido de Bres is writing, the context of the Roman Catholic Church where priests were assigned their parish by someone else, where someone up the food chain would indicate you get to be in this place and you get to be in that place, and they were regularly moved around also, that the uh, word of Guido de Bres here, the confession of the church here, uh, is contrary to that to that way of doing things. We are uh, do not have uh, some ele- some official far away in some far away town appoint the elders, deacons, and ministers of our congregation. No, the congregation elects them in a legitimate election, says Guido, not a sham election. You can think of places like Cuba or Russia before there, or the Soviet Union before that. They often had or have elections, but the outcome is predetermined. The outcome is guaranteed because they are not real elections. They're just show elections. But Guido says, no, the election of the church must be a legitimate one. It must be done with prayer, and it must be done in good order. It must be done according to God's word. We noted last week that Matthias' election was done this way, that there was not a drawing of lots, but a casting of lots, a casting of votes by the then congregation. It was a small congregation at that time, about to expand rapidly, but at that time was small, and they cast their votes for who it was should be the apostle to replace Judas. 
In the same way, we in the local congregation recognize, affirm those chosen by Christ to serve in these offices by our regular election of office bearers. And that is a very, would have been a very controversial position to take for Guido in those days, especially considering the politicization of the offices of the church. You need to understand that in those days, men were appointed to many of the offices of the church for far less than pious reasons. Positions in the church came with, among other things, a very steady income. It was a position you wanted to have because then your financial needs were, were met for life. And so people would petition, they would appeal, they would bribe officials to put their sons into that office in order to enjoy the benefits of the office. John Calvin was appointed to an office that way. Never really went to the place he was appointed and never really ministered among them. But he received an income from that parish because his father had managed to get it for him. That is the day, the context in which Guido is writing in the context of a hierarchical church where the local church is not considered to have authority, but some bureaucracy is considered to have authority. But that is not what God's Word teaches, and that is not the authority that the local church is given by Jesus Christ. Indeed, that's what we need to see. That in the pattern of Scripture, in the teaching of Scripture, the emphasis is on the local church exercising this authority within their confines. Acknowledging, of course, the broader body of believers undoubtedly, but recognizing that each congregation is to appoint its office bearers. Titus 1, we read that last week. Paul says to Titus there that he is to put each congregation in order that they might be ruled by elders. Notice that Paul doesn't appoint the men. He sends Titus to those congregations that it might be done among them. Think about Acts chapter 13 where the church in Antioch appoints Paul and Barnabas to go out as missionaries to the Gentiles. Again, the local congregations appointed these men for these ta- this task. They didn't do it on their own. They didn't receive the appointment from James in Jerusalem. They received it from the local congregation in Antioch. Indeed, think about Jesus' own letters to the churches in Revelation, the seven churches of Asia Minor. Jesus writes a letter to the messenger, to the angel, which may be a reference to the minister of each congregation. A word to each congregation, to be read, of course, by all the congregations, to be appreciated by all the congregations, but Jesus deals with them each individually. And so the pattern of the Word of God is to see each congregation as exercising the authority Christ has given it in the election of office bearers in that church. Now, we live in a different time, of course. We don't live in the time that Guido de Bray lived in. We actually live in a time of democratization, where in fact people believe that they rule, not Christ. That's the challenge we face, thinking that because Christ has called each local congregation to exercise its authority in this way, that therefore the real authority is amongst the members. But it's not. Because the church is not a democracy. It is a monarchy, and it is an absolute monarchy. It is as top-down, as hierarchical an institution as you can get, because at the very top of it is none other than Jesus Christ, the King. 
Notice how it is with prayers and according to the good order of the Word of God that the election is to be taken place. The congregation is expected to, to confess their dependence on Christ in choosing these men. They are not to choose those whom they desire. They are to seek the face of God and say, Lord, make clear to us whom it is that you have chosen. And the word of God has sovereign rule. It is those who meet the the, the description of office bearers in the word of God that are to be elected to the offices of the church. Which is just to say that Jesus Christ retains the final authority within the church calling us to submit to it, calling us to acknowledge it, calling us to affirm it in the way that we go about choosing men for the offices of the church. Whatever authority the local congregation enjoys, it is a gift of Christ's to be used in service to the King. So we're not a democracy where various factions get to vie for their position. We are not a place where we get to politicize the offices and consider them to be representatives of our will, of our attitudes, of our demands. So often that's the way it goes, isn't it? The elder comes to make a visit. The deacon comes to make a visit. The minister comes to make a visit. Here's what we're telling you you should do. Here's what we're demanding of you. Here's what we think the congregate. Now go back to your meeting and get it done. That spirit lives also among us. But such thinking is contrary to where the Word of God teaches. The Word of God teaches that the church, yes, has been given authority, but it is an authority to serve Christ. When we are choosing men for office, we are seeking to discern God's activity in our midst. That's why those Christ-like qualities we talked about last time are so important. They help us discern Christ's moving among us by His Spirit. Remember, the calling of all members is, of course, to serve, but not in every place or task. There are offices of ministry, not management. Not being elected to the office of the church does not mean that we're not saved, that we're not valuable, that we're not as good as the next guy. Oh, and by the way, it is only, of course, men that can serve in these offices. It just means that Christ has given us gifts to serve in another way, to serve the body in some other capacity, to serve the God with some other set of gifts. There are no small parts, as they say. There are just small actors. The goal of our electing officers is to discern whom God has chosen and has given the gifts of service to use amongst us for the benefit of the congregation. Ours is to affirm His leadership within our fellowship. And that's also true then of what the office bearers are to do. In the second paragraph of this article, it is said that everyone must be careful not to push himself forward improperly, but he must wait for God's call that he may be assured of His calling and be certain and sure that He is chosen by the Lord. Echoing Scripture Guido says we are not to push forward improperly. Now that word improperly is key because there is a proper way to push forward. He who desires the office of elder of bishop desires a good thing, says the Scriptures. There is a way 
to desire the ministry of the Word. We, in our church order even, speak about encouraging the young men of the congregation to think of the ministry of preacher. To, in those young men who show the gifts and qualities of being a preacher, to say to them, pray about that. Think about You need to consider whether or not you ought to pursue, you ought to reach for this office of minister within the church. But you are to do that not inappropriately. You are to wait for the internal call of God, which is then confirmed by the external call of the congregation. You are not to seek popular approval. You are to rather seek the Lord's guidance. That means that all the men of the congregation should regularly be in prayer before the Lord. Should say, Lord, where do you want me to serve? How do you want me to serve? It may well be that you say, that the Lord says, I want you to serve in some other capacity, not in this one. We are to seek, therefore, the Lord's will for our lives. For that is the posture, that is the character that should define every office bearer. Every office bearer ought to enter the office with a sense of humility, a sense of inadequacy, a sense of of our being unequal to the task, but also of our wanting to serve the King, of our saying, Lord, you have given me this office, and I will discharge it as faithfully, as gratefully, as thankfully as I can to your glory. Indeed, we are to seek these offices in order to praise our God. And this spiritual aspect, this gratitude in service, this humble devotion has not always been, indeed has not often been, a priority within the church. It wasn't the priority in the days of the Reformation. In the days of the Reformation within the church of Jesus Christ broadly, there were undoubtedly godly and sincere leaders in the church. John Calvin himself acknowledges that about certain congregations in the Roman Catholic Church, saying it is still there that the church of Jesus Christ is found. These men often toiled in obscurity within a politically motivated organization that they pushed away seeking instead to minister the Word of God faithfully. But the truth is is that in those days, the way to move forward in the church, the way to achieve position and priority within the church was far more worldly than godly. What mattered was a person's relationship with others rather than their relationship with Christ. We face a rather similar challenge in our day, to be completely frank, because the spirituality of the church is suffering. Consider how men these days are hardly men anymore. Men have been feminized. Men have been made weak. Men have been made lazy and empty of any leadership qualities for a whole host of reasons. We understand why our culture wants that. We understand why in our society strong leaders are not the kind of thing that we value. But surely in the church, men are to be men. 
That is, they are to be selfless in their desire to serve. They are to be focused in their commitment to Jesus Christ. They are to be confident in His Word and will. They are to take that leadership, that commitment to Christ and His Word into their studies, into their work, into their homes, into their churches. They are to say, thus says the Lord, we will follow Christ in the way that we serve. Instead, we have men today who are willing, who have been told rather, to live out their selfish desires, to not be Christ-like in their ministry, to not emulate Him, imitate Him in their homes, but to surrender the responsibility to women. The truth is, is even in this congregation, if I were to call a congregational meeting, or no, a congregational Bible study, I can almost guarantee that more than 50% of the attendees will be women, not men. But the church must be different. The men of the church must be different. For we have been created to be different and redeemed to be different. To lead, not according to our heart's desire. That's where we get confused. That's where things get a little sideways. We think, give men all of this authority, they'll ruin it. And an unrighteous, a man not born again, a man who is not committed to Christ, will certainly use that authority to advance his own cause. But one who has bowed at the throne of Christ, one who has claimed Christ as Lord and seeks to live according to God's Word, he will direct not in his way, but in the Lord's way. And such are the men we need. Such is the circumstance of our day. Such are the ones who are to aspire to the office of elder and deacon and minister. Those who understand this ministry and this leadership in an entirely Christ-centered way. Who desire to bring His Word. Who desire to teach others the joy of living in His way who know the blessing of walking in His Word. Too often the kind of men that inspire us are the ones who say, Listen, Lord, Your servant is speaking. When we need men who will say, Speak, Lord, for Your servant is listening. This means the men of our congregation must learn to sit at the foot of the cross and to hear the voice of their Savior to be in their word earnestly and sincerely, exercising those spiritual qualities among friends, challenging those brothers and sisters that maybe are straying with a loving word of correction, starting a Bible study amongst your friend group, mentoring others, cadets, big brothers, young people in the Bible study, That is, in short, men who learn to develop the gifts necessary for the work the Lord is calling us to do. And learning that most poignantly in the home. Sitting down with your children. Reading God's Word. Opening the Scriptures. Teaching them the things of the Lord. Teaching them with an honesty and a transparency. So that we not only say to our children, you need to walk close with God. But they see it in us that they see we want to walk close with God. Now, as we've noted in the past, none of us is equal to the task. 
None of us is so great that we can polish our, our, our laurels and, and declare to everyone, look how good we are. But there is a world of difference between a man who serves Christ and a man who serves his own interests. The one we have plenty of, the other we need more of. Now remember again, we all need to ask, all of us need to be asking, where are we serving? Whom am I serving? How am I serving? All members, men and women alike, need to see the way that the Lord has redeemed us is for the purpose of blessing. But our men would do well to ask themselves if they are gifted for the offices of Christ. And they are to ask their spouse and ask their children and ask their co-workers. Does this make sense to you? Is this something that indeed resonates with you? We've begun to do that as a congregation. We've begun to ask around when men are nominated for the offices. We've begun to talk to the wife and to the children and to the community. This one is being considered for a position of leadership in the church. Does that make sense to you? If the answer is no, then we need to do some thinking and some praying and some repenting. And if the answer is yes, Yes, there's one who shows to be a Christian who in all that they do makes Christ their King. Not perfectly. Not not in a way that is remarkable. But faithfully and persistently. Maturely. And sincerely. Those are the men that the church needs. Those are the men that we love to see serve. Even even if they never make it to the offices of the church, they're going to be a blessing in their work, they're going to be a blessing in their home, they're going to be a blessing in the community. None of that godly devotion will be wasted as they serve in the work that they've been given. For it is the work that we are to honor. Listen to what Guido says in the last paragraph. He says, Moreover, to keep God's holy order from being violated or despised, we say that everyone ought as much as possible to hold the ministers of the word and elders of the church in special esteem because of the work they do and to be at peace with them without grumbling, quarreling, or fighting. Echoing scripture, for this is a reference to God's word, the the writer of the confession says we are to value, not first of all the person the work why do we offer respect to the officers of the church the scripture says for the works sake because the Lord has chosen to minister to us in this way because the Lord has sent them into our lives in order to be a blessing to us because God knows what we need it's not because they're remarkable or powerful or charismatic or important It's because God would have us grow in the grace and knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the work that office bearers of the church are given. Of ministering the Word into our lives and hearts. Shepherding us along the pathway of life so that we might better reflect what Christ has done. They are our spiritual fathers, you might say. Who are like fathers in the home teaching us. No, that's not the way to go. We do it this way. No, here's why you need to understand what we do. This is what the Word of God teaches. 
It is that ministry of the Word into our lives that we need to value as members of the congregation. That's what we need to demand of our elders, deacons, and ministers. That when they come to us, they come to us to encourage us with the grace of God. And that's not easy to do, neither to minister the Word so faithfully, nor to respect those in authority over us. Notice how there is a certain honesty uh, in the, the confession. To keep God's holy order from being violated or despised, we say that everyone, as much as possible, ought to hold ministers of the Word, elders of the church, in special esteem. As much as possible, we recognize that there is a brokenness in this world that also comes into the church, into the positions of the church. In Guido's day, there were some fairly wicked church leaders. Church leaders don't always make it easy to respect them. And the devil works hard to tear down the church by making the leaders stumble and fall. If the devil can use a leader to become selfish and to, to pasture himself on the sheep rather than providing pasture for them sheep, for the sheep, then he's halfway home. And that's what makes it hard to, to respect those in authority over us. They're not always respectable. And the devil wants us to focus on their faltering and failing rather than on the ministry that they've been given us. And that certainly doesn't mean that criticism and rebuke in the church is not in order. To esteem the work is not necessarily to remain silent in every instance where sin or where brokenness is experienced. Respect, submission in the Word of God is not silent acceptance of everything someone does or says. Not in the church, not in the home, work, or at school. If a leader can't handle criticism, even foolish and ignorant criticism, they should better look for another way to serve in the church. Just as those criticizing need to recognize that they may not have the whole picture, because it's easy to think our position is the right one, we ought to remember that these men are trying to consider the whole congregation and minister to the the entire body of believers. The truth is, unless we want a church that is absolutely uniform, which will inevitably result in a church with only one member, we're going to have to learn to distinguish between essential matters and non-essential matters, both as leaders and as members. There are times when criticism can be sent and offered, and it ought to be heard and considered. But there are other times, think of Paul in the book of Galatians, when Paul says, absolutely not, not on this point. Oh, there's lots of place for criticism. He criticized Peter. But on the gospel, there is no room for wavering. It must be always pure, always maintained, always clear. And as congregation, we need to know when we can criticize and when we can't. And as leaders, we need to know when we should listen to criticism and when we should respond with firm no. If we get upset about every decision being made in the congregation, or even just every decision we disagree with, 
our blessing to others will diminish very quickly. We become then known as the cantankerous member of the congregation instead of the one who serves faithfully. It is possible in the church to say, I don't agree, but that's okay. How can I serve? For that's the goal of all of us. We're all sinners. We all need to do better. We all need to help each other do better. For the glory of God needs to remain our great good. And we can help each other glorify God in the church. When we each in our respective offices, as minister, elder, deacon, as office of believer, in each of our office, if we put Christ first and desire only His glory, then we will be blessed. Indeed, imagine that. Just allow your mind to go there. A congregation where the demand of each member of the congregation is that their leadership show them the glory of God. Show them how to live holier, closer in their walk with God, with greater godliness. And imagine a church where the leader's great desire, each leader in the church, their desire is to minister the Word of God so that we all might stand in awe of Him and offer our lives as in living sacrifice to Him. What a church. That would be something. Wouldn't that be just about perfection? We're not there yet. But if we keep striving, we can continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let's ask Him for that blessing in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for the way in which You continually provide for Your people within uh, the church. We are grateful, Lord, that You are our God and that we are Your people. We pray that each one of us, Lord, who have heard Your Word, might hear it inscribed inwardly on our hearts. Oh, we know, Lord, that that Word has not been proclaimed perfectly. We pray also for forgiveness, for purity, for improvement. We pray that the Word of God would constantly be more clearly proclaimed, more faithfully uttered, more continuously uh, uh, declared to Your people in a way that is compelling and convicting. And we pray that each one of us, as we receive Your Word meekly, with pure affection, may have our hearts filled with love and reverence for us. Cause, cause, Lord, cause us to bear the fruit of the Spirit and to live in holiness diligently obeying your commandments, each of us in our own place and in our own work. And may it please you, Lord, to use us to lead, to lead in the positions of officers, to lead in the office of believer, to lead those who are lost, wandering, and confused into the way of truth, to lead others, Lord, to see more clearly the glory of your grace. Lord, help us all to fulfill the calling we've received. All this we pray for the honor and praise of your name through Jesus Christ our Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.